All right, well, I'm glad you're all here this morning, and um, I hope that expectations haven't been set too high. Um, I think this week will be kind of a, an interesting week, and I, I think that this class is really important for a whole lot of reasons, and I want to say and make it clear, you know, I, I, I did struggle with what to call this, and it's not a new members class because most of you have been here much longer than I've been here, and so that would be a little strange to call it a new members class. Um, some of you are not members at all, and that's that's okay too, but so that would be weird if I called it uh, something just for, for you guys. So I would just call it a members class, and the idea was that it's for anybody who's here, and, and we're going to be focusing on several things, but I wanted it to be focused on people who were members and maybe didn't understand the whole picture of who we are and people who were thinking about becoming members and wanted to understand who we are and everybody in between that. So that's why we're calling it a members class. And I feel like it's necessary for a couple of reasons. And so I'm going to give you these reasons and then we'll just sort of jump in. But I feel like that one of the reasons we need to have a class like this is because modern Western Christianity in particular seems to be losing its identity. And um, I think that that's true. I, I think that we seem to have lost touch with church history. And you may say, well, what's church history have to do with my daily walk with Christ? Why do I need to know anything about that? Well, I, th- I think you'll see that it is important on a lot of levels. And we need to know where we came from because when we lose sight of where we've come from, a lot of times what ends up happening is that allows us to go in all sorts of strange directions. And I think that we can see this happening and towards the end of what I'm going to share with you, maybe we can see a little more clearly why that seems to be happening in modern Christianity now and the turn of the, this new millennium. It seems like we're just kind of going in all kinds of strange directions. So I think it's important for us to understand our identity and then also and uh, where we came from and then also our doctrinal identity as a church because we do have one. We do have a doctrinal identity as a church and that's important. And our church is kind of a, a strange church in a way I've never been a part of a church like our church where we have so many people who come from so many different um, faith backgrounds. I mean, in this room alone, I'm sure that we would find people who come from Catholic backgrounds. They grew up in the Catholic church. We might find that people grew up, well, John, I know you did. You grew up that way. And, and, um, and we would find people who probably came out of Methodist and Lutheran and Episcopal. And our church, I mean, it's just all over the place, and I think that probably uh, we don't have a good grasp of our identity as a Baptist church, and we are a Baptist church. I know it's not in the name anymore. I know we took it out of the name for various reasons, but not because we weren't going to be Baptist anymore, and so I want us to understand that, and then also one of the things that we're going to work towards in this class, this this class will sort of go in three stages. First, we're going to sort of understand our identity Historically, then we're going to understand our identity doctrinally, and then we're going to talk about why it matters to be a church member. And this is another thing that, that seems to be lost on modern Christianity in the West, is the idea of being a covenant member of a church body. And so for all of us, this is important, not just um, people who aren't members. It's not, that period's not just for them, it's for all of us, because all of us, I think, could use a, a freshening up on the idea of why church membership is important. And even if it's biblical, some people would want to know, 
is it biblical? Because truthfully, if I'm just going to be blunt with you, the, the idea, or not the idea, I think the idea is there, but the explicit command to be a church member is not in the Bible. But I think we're going to see that it's all over the New Testament. And so we'll get there eventually. And so that's, that's the idea, is to understand our history, understand our doctrinal identity, and then understand why it's important for us to be members of a church. So I want to begin uh, today, and I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as possible. Instead of having a discussion, this will kind of be like Wednesday nights where I'm just going to give you a whole bunch of information and then hopefully we'll have time to discuss it when I'm done. So just let me, unless it's something like you really just have to share or say, let me try to get through and then we'll, at the end, we'll come back for a question. So I want to begin by giving you sort of an overview of our history, beginning with the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And I had to warn you that I'm going to try to cram 450 years of history into the next 30 minutes. And, uh, and so those of you who are familiar with any of this are going to say, well, why didn't you talk about that? Or why didn't you talk about that? It's because I don't have time. There's just no time. Um, but beginning with the Protestant Reformation, and essentially the, the Cliff Notes version is this, that leading up and into the uh, 16th century, around the 1500s, uh, you basically had one centralized church. Now, there were always dissenters. There were always sort of reformers in the church, people who didn't agree with things, but essentially, by the time we got to 1500, there was just one church. There was a church at Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, and we got there, and we had this guy named Martin Luther. It's interesting. I grew up most of my life thinking that the only Martin Luther was the one with king at his name. I really didn't know anything about this Martin Luther who he was named for, but Martin Luther was a German monk, and then he he just sort of became troubled by the things that he was seeing in the Catholic Church. And he became particularly troubled over this idea of indulgences and the idea that you could purchase indulgences. And what that meant, what the church was doing at the time, the Catholic Church taught that when you died, if you had unresolved things in your life, you would go to purgatory. And one of the ways that for you to, to help your loved ones get out of purgatory was for you to purchase indulgences on their behalf. And so the church was raising money very effectively by having people buy uh, these indulgences. And I think that the old uh, salesman of the church, I can't remember his name right now, but the most famous salesman of indulgences used to go about singing something along the lines that uh, every time a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. And so that was what was going on that was most troubling to Luther. And so he penned what was called the 95 Theses. And he took his thesis and he nailed it to the church door and he wanted debate over these things. He wanted the church to debate. And initially, the idea initially was not to form another branch of Christianity. The idea was to reform the existing church. So you got to understand that Luther's intent was not to do away with Catholicism. His intent wasn't to do away. And by the way, the reason I was careful to write Roman Catholic up here is because the word Catholic really is a designator about the universal church. Like this morning in worship, we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. And in that Apostles' Creed, it says that we believe in one holy Catholic church. And now people sitting in the seats may say, wait a minute, aren't we Protestants? Well, yeah, we're Protestants, but we also believe in the Catholic universal church, but not the Roman Catholic church. That's an important designator. So anyway, 
Martin Luther penned his thesis, put them up for debate, and eventually it came to, to be that it was clear there would be no reform, that there was not going to be a reform in the, in the Catholic Church the way that Luther had hoped for. And essentially the, the divide came over two big issues. And again, this is one of those places where if you're familiar with this, you're going to say you're missing 90% of it. I absolutely am. But I just want to focus on two big issues that caused the, the Reformation to leave the Catholic Church behind and then the Catholic Church to respond and leave the Protestant Reformation behind. And basically the two big issues were the issue of authority and the issue of salvation. How, what is the authority in the church and how is a person saved? And on the issue of authority... The Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches and affirmed in the Counter-Reformation that not only was Scripture authoritative in the church, but tradition is authoritative in the church, just as authoritative as the Scriptures. So if the Pope, for instance, makes a decree or the church itself um, makes a decision from the headquarters in Rome, that that decision or that tradition of the church holds just as much authority as the scriptures do. Now Luther and the other reformers refused to stand in that position and instead they said, no, we believe that there's only one authority in the church, one authority for faith and practice. And what was that? The Bible, right. And so there was the idea of sola scriptura. And there's five solas of the Reformation. I only give you two. But sola scriptura just means scripture alone. There's only scripture. That's the only authority in the church. And then the other issue was how is a person saved? And again, the Roman church was teaching that there was a, a, a sort of a, a combination, so to speak, of the gospel plus works. There had to be works accompanying belief in the gospel. Otherwise, a person couldn't be saved. And so if you just push that one step further than where I just took it, what you're saying is that a person must then be saved ultimately by what? By their works. And so the reformers again, particularly Luther again on this issue, said, no, we don't believe that. We think that the scripture teaches really clearly that you're only saved by faith in Christ. Faith alone. Sola fide is the way that that other sola. Sola fide. Faith alone in Christ. And so eventually it became clear. And there were other issues, lots of other issues. But really, eventually it became clear that there just wouldn't be a reformation of the Roman Catholic Church. And so you had these new Protestant denominations break away from the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm sure you already know already what it, that at the root of being a Protestant is the idea of protest. That that's, that's the idea that there was a protest against the church and then and they, we eventually had this breaking away, so to speak, from the church, and all these Protestant denominations emerged. Now, now what I want to talk about is Protestantism and all these denominations and how to understand those. And uh, this week, as I was doing some research, I came to find out that it's pretty much agreed on that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of between twenty to 28,000 Protestant denominations. That's mind-boggling if you think about it. And there's no way that we could ever rightly discern what all of those are. And admittedly, when we say that, what we're, what we're accounting for is every single 
split hair. Every single church that identifies itself as Protestant and maybe uh, not as part of a, a larger denomination. But really, there's only really a few big umbrellas that we put Protestantism under and, and a few big denominations. And one of the ways that we begin to understand who we are, and this is important, that we begin to understand who we are and, and who or what other denominations are is by talking about church government. I know that that's so exciting to think about understanding church government, but for us, it is important for us to understand who we are. And so we have basically three forms of church government. And when we're talking about church government, what we're really talking about is who makes the decisions or has the authority, for instance, to ordain ministers of the church, or who has the authority to administer the ordinances or sacraments of the church? Who, who's at, who has, holds those positions of authority? And so really just break that down into three sort of forms of church government. And there's, even in Baptist life, maybe we can talk later about this, there's some combination of all of these that can be present um, in Baptist life as well. But I'm just going to, for the sake of the argument, walk you through this. So first you have this church government that's, um, that has bishops or that that's puts the authority in the hands of the bishops or these overseers over the church as a whole. Um, now, uh, Colby, you came out of a Methodist environment, and you would have had bishops over the, over the church that would have been responsible or had the ultimate authority. And then you would have, like, Lutherans as well are there, and uh, Episcopals. I'm going to spell that wrong, probably. Um, Methodist. So they would fall in that category of that they would have bishops, a bishopry over the church that was responsible for and had the authority over groups of churches. Uh, the, the authority in the church wasn't localized into the congregation necessarily. And then you would have another form of government, and we're painting with really broad brushes today, but you would have churches that, are, that entrust that authority to elders or pastors, pastor elders, and that the authority is ultimately with them, and that would primarily... Um, be the Presbyterian Church. Um, in fact, you would find the name for elder in Greek, pres, uh, presbyteros, is where we get the word Presbyterian. And so they entrust their, their elders with governing the church. So they're elder ruled. And then you have congregational governments, which... Um, we could just put that on the end of there. This congregational church clearly is called a congregational church for a reason, right? Because they're ruled by the congregation. But also, who else is over here? Baptists. Baptist. And Baptists believe in, and, and hold pretty firmly to the idea of the priesthood of the believer and that, that every believer is capable of making these decisions and holds authority, God-given authority, because the Holy Spirit indwells each of us. And so we... Um, Probably the best way to say our government is elder-led, but congregational rule. Does that make sense? So there is an elder. I would be the elder of the church. I would be the pastor. But the, ultimately, the congress, congregation is tasked with making decisions. In fact, that's how I ended up here, because you guys collectively made a decision to bring me here as the congregation. So 
So you have those different sorts of governments. And so hopefully you're starting to already gain a little bit of clarity on... Yeah, forget, we're, we're beyond Roman Catholic. We're not going to talk about them anymore. Unless there's a question at the end, you can, you can come back to it. But in Protestant churches, these would be the three basic forms or, of church government in really basic form. And then you can start dividing further, or not dividing is not a good word, but you can start identifying further who we are as Baptists over the issue, obviously, of baptism. Baptistism. <laughs> Baptism. I spell that wrong. But the the idea here is what is our view of, of baptism and how do we understand baptism? And there's really just basically um, two ways to understand it. And and there's and this is again really simple because some churches practice both, but we're just gonna put it in two categories. Churches that practice infant baptism and churches that practice believer baptism. Some churches practice infant baptism and believer baptism. Colby Methodist Church, you would practice both, right? So, the, um, so some churches do both. But as basically what we're going to try to identify ourselves here is two different things. Pedo-baptism is on this side. Credo-baptism is on this side. Now, those words are important and easy enough to understand. Pedo-baptism, that prefix, the same prefix where eventually we would end up with like pediatrics, the idea of children, children. So we baptize infants or we baptize children. And then credo baptism, creed, the idea of belief. We don't baptize anybody until they've expressed a belief in the gospel on their own. So you could sort of divide all of these or really end up with just putting or drawing a line kind of where we could go. Infant baptism is practiced in one form or another in here. Only believers. I should just write only. And so that's another way that we begin to understand our identity as Baptists. And that ought to be easy enough for us to understand, I think, because we're called Baptists. I mean, there's a reason that we're called Baptists, and that's because we made that a core of who we were, this idea of baptizing believers. It wasn't that they don't baptize. It was just that we made it a central mark of who we are as a church, that we only are going to baptize people who've made a confession of faith in Christ. And so we should be able, I think, just from that really brief history, I'm going to continue but from that really brief history to start to get an idea of who we are. Like for instance, I'm not going to write all these on the board, but, but here's some summary things that we could say just from this already that Baptists believe. Number one, Baptists believe that our sole authority, and remember where this is coming from, not out of thin air, right? This is coming from the Reformation. We believe that our sole authority for faith and practice in the church and in our individual Christian life is the Bible. That's it. There's no extra biblical authority. Not a church, not a hierarchy, not a personal thought or feeling that I have, 
not a personal thought or dream that you had. There's one authority, and that is the Bible. And then we also believe, and you can say that this is a mark of who we are, we also believe that we're saved by faith alone and not by works. And remember, again, that these are principles that came not out of thin air, not from the Southern Baptist Convention. These are things that came to us out of the Reformation. And so we believe our sole authority is Scripture. We believe that we're saved by faith alone. We believe that our churches should be congregationally ruled, that our churches should be ruled by the group, the congregation. And we believe that every person who confesses Jesus as Savior and Lord should be baptized, by the way, by full immersion, not by sprinkling, not with a hose, not with a bucket of water. You get baptized by going under the water. And of course, there's a reason for that that we don't have to spend a lot of time on, but we believe, number one, that the, the words of the New Testament teach us that, that the actual words mean to be immersed when we talk about baptism. But also the symbolism in baptism is that we've been buried with Christ and then we've been raised out of the grave into new life. And so there's symbolism in what we believe. Now, it's also really important uh, for us to say a few words today about what we're not as Baptists. And this is incredibly practical for us. And maybe we can have a few minutes of discussion about these things when I'm done this. But one thing that's important about what we're not, and I'll I'll write it up on the board for you in a minute. But you have to understand that Around the turn of the 20th century, a new group of Protestants appeared on the scene. And we would be very familiar with these people because none of us were alive when this happened. And so they've just always been, and they've been growing like wildfire, not only in the United States, but globally. This is the fastest growing movement of Protestant expression, Christianity that has ever happened in the world. And that's the Pentecostal movement. Or we could just say charismatic. And let me give you a brief history of that just because it's important for us to understand something. This began in the beginning of the 20th century and it essentially came in three waves. We call this the three waves of the charismatic movement. The first one began in 1906. In 1906, a group of believers gathered together, a group of Christians gathered together. And this, uh, historically, if you're just tracing the, the lineage of it, the first people who, who started this movement came out of a Methodist background, but it doesn't have anything to do with Methodists. It just has to do with that's who they were. So if you're tracing the lineage of it, that this guy, their leader, Charles Parham, came out of there and, and, they, and led to another... Um, man who was a disciple of his. And these group of believers just basically were, were trying to come together and discover um, were the New Testament sign gifts that we see in the book of Acts, are they still available for us today? Or are they still important for us today? And so they wanted to know primarily, could we, do, uh, could we still or should we still speak in tongues like we see in the New Testament or, or in the book of Acts primarily? And are there still miracles to be done? Should we still be healing each other or believing that we should be healed of various illnesses? And so they came together 
And eventually, and you can do more research on this uh, on your own, I would suggest a really good book to read, and you may suggest that it's not, but I would suggest that it is. A really good book to read would be called Strange Fire. It's by John MacArthur, and he gives a history of, of Pentecostal and charismatic movement. But essentially, they came together and, and began to believe that, yes, yes, tongues were for today. And yes, miracles were for today. And they began practicing uh, speaking in tongues and, and sort of performing miracles. And even though we've struggled to document any of those in the past 120 years, there's this idea that, yes, those things that we see in the book of Acts are still available and should be practiced today. And so that was in 1906, and that was the first wave of the Pentecostal movement. And the church, remember, coming out of the Reformation, there had been, other than issues of government and uh, baptism, there had been basic agreement on doctrine and how we view the New Testament. And so the church, the Protestant church, widely rejected Pentecostalism as unbiblical and as outside of Orthodox Christianity. It's important to know that that it, it was initially rejected as this is not Orthodox Christianity. And so because of that, then you have all these Protestant denominations that start to emerge, like the Pentecostal church, obviously. Um, you have Assemblies of God churches. Uh, you have the churches where you might see, remember seeing a lot of these down south, uh, such and such apostolic church. Um, church of God in all its various forms. There's all kinds of different churches of God. But these are Pentecostal denominations that were formed because when Pentecostalism emerged, the church rejected it. And so instead of there just being Pentecostal influences in the mainline churches, there was a split again in the beginning of the 20th century. Then the second wave came in 1959 or roughly in the 60s. And this is when a guy named Dennis Bennett an Episcopal of, of all things, an Episcopal clergyman uh, announced to his congregation in California, and both of these things started, by the way, in California, but uh, yeah, you should expect that. Um, the, uh, but this clergyman announced to his congregation one Sunday in 1959 that, that he had spoken in tongues and received the second gift, and m- most people agree that that's the beginning of where it moved out of the isolated sort of Pentecostal movement and started to move into the mainline denominations. And what happened was, this was just called sort of the charismatic wave, and what happened is that instead of it being isolated to Pentecostal and Assemblies of God and Church of God, then what you started to have is people in Episcopal churches who didn't identify as Pentecostal, they just identified as charismatic Episcopals or charismatic Baptists. You've probably run into some of those. Some of you have probably been in those churches. You, or you say charismatic Presbyterians, which is hard to imagine. But, but in all the churches, you start to have this idea that you could be who you are and just practice the gifts. And so you became charismatic. And then the third wave is in the 1980s where it began to emerge. And in the third wave, and again, we're painting with super big brushes here, but essentially the third wave of the charismatic movement uh, became a little bit more focused on uh, not necessarily the, the gifts or the signs that we see in the New Testament, but they began to focus more on issues like uh, health, wealth, prosperity, all those things. Uh, uh, this is TBN, 
If you ever watch TBN, this is what you're witnessing. This is the third wave of the charismatic movement where you have the prosperity gospel, which is essentially that you're a child of God and God wants all of his children to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be blessed. And by the way, if you're not, which most everybody on the planet isn't, then the problem is with you and not with God. It's the ultimate, ultimate scheme because there's always an out, and the out is always you. And so there's the prosperity gospel, and then the word of faith movement is also sort of mixed in there, and you might know what that is. The name explains what that is, is that you can speak things, and if you have faith, the things that you speak will become a reality. This is Kenneth Copeland and and these knuckleheads, Benny Hinn, you know, these guys that you see on TV that, that teach that you can do those things. Now, I give you all that history about Pentecostalism. I'll probably spend as much time on that as I did on the other because I want you to understand that historically, historically, the charismatic movement that we see exploding all over the United States and the West, and particularly in Africa and South America right now, literally exploding on the scene, that that charismatic movement is not a historical expression of biblical Christianity. That's, I mean, again, we can, you can argue that with me. I mean, that's what this class is about. But I want you to know that as a church, and as a Baptist church, and as a church that ties its lineage all the way back to the Protestant Reformation, that we do not historically accept or teach the practices of the charismatic movement. That's not who we are as a church. And so, of all those things that I said, that that the Bible is our sole authority in faith and practice in the church and in our individual life, that we're saved by faith alone and not by works, that we govern congregationally because we believe in the priesthood of the believer, and that every person who confesses Jesus as our Savior and Lord should be baptized by full immersion. And then that final sort of asterisk on there is that we are not, Baptists are not historically charismatic people. We don't believe in the the continuation of those gifts in the New Testament. Hey, is that clock right behind me? Okay, then I'm going to continue real quick just for a couple more minutes and try to get through this whole thing, and then I'll open up for questions. So then, out of the, uh, the Reformation, which happened in Europe, eventually you have the persecution, really heavy persecution, of the church continuing there by... Uh, um, different factions for different reasons. And some of the reformers were, were it wasn't just Catholics oppressing or, or uh, persecuting Protestants. Within Protestantism, there were certain branches that were also uh, persecuting one another for their beliefs. It was a different time in a different world. And one of the uh, groups that was the most persecuted were Baptists in their various forms. And because they were kind of, if you remember, we were writing all this you get over here, and Baptists are kind of like over here on their own on that issue of baptism. And, uh, and there were other groups, other Anabaptist groups, What that just means uh, baptized again. And that was a uh, term that they used to, to describe other groups who were Anabaptists, like Mennonites are Anabaptists, um, Amish are Anabaptists. Uh, those, those groups are Anabaptist groups. And they, in order to escape that persecution, the Baptists left Europe and came to the New World when the New World opened up and arrived here in the uh, early, late 1600s, early 1700s, and began to sort of settle in the New World. And 
there eventually, uh, another hallmark of Baptist life is cooperation. And we believe in associating with other churches. Oh, you know what I should have mentioned, and I didn't, is that Baptist churches always are autonomous. Always are autonomous. That's an important Baptist distinctive. And I should have mentioned that when we got over here in the roles of church government. By the time you get to the congregation, we don't believe that there's anybody higher or more authoritative than the congregation. So every congregation is a law unto itself. That's what autonomy means. So we are our own church. Nobody can tell us what to do. The Southern Baptist Convention, even though we're a Southern Baptist church, has zero authority in this church. In fact, the authority structure in the Southern Baptist Convention is backwards than what, what most people would understand. You have this big convention that meets in June of every year, and you have this convention offices in Nashville and these big, monstrous mission-sending organizations. But all the authority is right here in the local church, and it moves uh, towards the, the bigger convention where we would vote as a convention on different things. So anyway, you have the Baptists in America, and they begin to associate together for the sake of missions, and you have two organizations that emerge initially. One is the Philadelphia Convention or Association of Baptists. That's the first association of Baptists in the United States. And then out of that, there was a sister organization that was born, which is uh, the Charleston Association, which was the Southern Association in South Carolina. So you have a northern group and a southern group, but they're not separate. They're the same. They're just located in different places. And together, those groups formed two organizations. They formed a, a home mission agency or association which was responsible for sending missionaries to the wild frontier of Ohio and, um, you know, all these, these other places where uh, it used to be the frontier, to the mountains of North Carolina, to the Indians that were still there. All. So you had this home mission agency, and then you had, they formed a foreign mission agency who would send missionaries, obviously, to other places. And this is Lottie Moon, you know, going to China and all these things. So you have them gathering together, and they had other things there as well, the Women's Missionary Union. How many of you remember WMU, those things? So they had these other things, um, and they're working together for the first hundred years or so of their life, or not even that long. And then what begins to happen in America is you start to have all of these uh, struggles between North and South. And it wasn't just about slavery. Like, don't, don't misunderstand that, because that's a common narrative today is that the, the issues between North and South were all slavery-related. That's not true. That was a big issue, and that may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. But there were all kinds of issues of who had authority and who was right, and culturally the South was different than the North, and they were living differently and all these things. And so eventually there started to become a real problem in Baptist life between the Philadelphia Association and the Charleston Association. They just didn't get along very well anymore because their cultures were different. And then the straw that did break the camel's back was that the uh, Charleston Association recommended a missionary, uh, a missionary to Georgia, of all places. And the missionary was rejected by the home mission agency because he was a slave owner. Then, several years later, another missionary was appointed or, or sent to the foreign mission agency and I can't remember where he was meant to go, but he also was a slave owner, and he was rejected because of, he was a slave owner. And this eventually was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back between the two. And they split. They formed their own associations. 
the Philadelphia Association would later become the American Baptists that are still around today, that are still kind of up north, much smaller group. And the Charleston Association, being in the south, became the Southern Baptist Convention. Right, and that's where they began in Charleston, South Carolina. And then uh, the thing that really marked them was that they had a real fervor about evangelism. And the Southern Baptist Convention just sort of outgrew everybody. And it just became what it is today. And it has nothing anymore to do with the South, which is why for so long many voices at the Southern Baptist Convention each year are saying, please, can we name ourselves something else because it's weird being a Southern Baptist church in Minnesota. You know, it's weird enough being a Southern Baptist church in Maryland because it doesn't have anything to do with the South anymore. It used to, but it doesn't anymore. And several years ago, they did make an allowance that Southern Baptist churches could identify themselves. The messengers agreed, I think in 2011, that we could identify as Great Commission Baptist, and it would be the same thing. But nobody ever did. We just call ourselves Southern Baptist churches. And so that's sort of how we got to where we are today. We're all autonomous. And that's why that autonomy is why now, 500 years post-Reformation, you can go to this church and find a different expression of Baptist life than you'll find at Friendship up the street or at Liberty up the street or at South Columbia down the street. And it's that autonomy that leads us to express ourselves differently. But ultimately, if we're looking at it historically, we do all kind of spring out of the Protestant Reformation and those basic core beliefs that led us to where we're at today.